0: Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession To the praise of His glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, and power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we bow before You this morning. Grateful to come to the King of Heaven and to have an audience before Your throne. And to know that that audience is assured because of the work of Christ and the new and living way that's been opened up in Him. We come with a boldness that's not our own to a throne, God, that without Christ we would have no right to stand before except as a place to receive judgment and condemnation. But God, we come and we pour our hearts out to You. We bow and we worship. Coming, God, not only to a a king and a judge, but to a father. As children, clamoring around You, God, we bow and we open our mouths wide and ask, God, that You might fill them. God, we like Jehoshaphat that we read about this morning are often a people who are baffled and don't know what to do but God we come to you trusting believing you always know what to do that you're never baffled there's never been a moment in which you've been at a loss as to know what to do next as though you're reacting to a world around you but God you Created everything, and you have set everything into motion, and you sustain everything by your own power and might. Or God, perhaps on our side, worse, we come often with a a kind of sanctified wisdom, which we think we know what to do. Like Nathan hearing the plans of David to build a temple, saying, "Yes, yes, that sounds great." God, we think we know the course of action. We think we know what you would have us to do. Only to be stopped and to realize that we don't know. But God, you always have the correct course. It's not just that you know something to do. You have the right thing to do. God, we thank you that you in kindness have already instructed us not to lean on our own understanding. But God, with great patience you often teach us not to lean on. On our own understanding. And so God. We want in every area of our lives. Corporately together this morning. But also as individuals and members of families. To acknowledge you. And God we trust that you will make our paths straight. God truly your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Even in this matter of the gospel. The world looks on at the gospel. And it's foolishness. But God. God. You tell us that it is the wisdom of God. And the power of God. To salvation to everyone that believes. God we come seeking wisdom this morning. We come seeking you. We ask God that you would come near and meet with us. God instruct us. Teach us. Fill us. And God we pray that our hearts. Would again be captivated by. The glories of Christ Jesus. And that we would. Worship and praise you and give you the glory that's due your name. God, we praise you that as you rescue sinners. That while you rescue them individually, you do make us to be parts of a body. And that you have placed us where you would have us to be. And God, you've given us a body for our good. For our edification. And God, we look to you. We look to our Lord Jesus who is the head of the church and we ask God that He would be pleased with all that's said and done here this morning. God, we pray that as Your Word goes out this morning that it would find a good lodging place in our hearts. That in good soil it would spring forth and bear fruit. God, we ask you these things for our good. But God, we ask them for the praise of the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.
1: Please open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll look at the last few verses of that chapter. It's a joy to be with you all again. It's always a blessing. And thank you for having me. I want you to think about something with me, especially if you're one of the children with us today, I want you to think about your house, uh, where the kitchen is, where your bedroom is, I want you to think about your front and backyard, and if you're not one of the children, you used to be one, so I want you to think about your childhood home. Uh, Maybe it's the one you're still in, but if it's not, take your mind back to your childhood home. But I especially want you to think not about the street or the structure of the house, Not even where the kitchen or the rooms are. But I want you to think about the house rules. How things operate. The basic guidelines. How do you do life within your home? How was it done when you were a kid? Things like the unwritten rules. You know, is food and drink only allowed at the kitchen table? Uh, Or like my teenage sons, is there a stack of soda, like a pyramid of soda cans by your bed? Think about the rules of your house. Although our main house rules are probably largely the same, most of us, I'm just assuming by virtue of our being here together now, we probably operate largely the same, but I'm thinking about the, the nuances, the differences, the things that are not necessarily right or wrong. They're not sinful or holy, they're just things that we do differently. Oftentimes we just assume everybody else operates the same way until we encounter some of those differences. And for those of us who are married upon marriage, upon marriage spouses quickly learn what some of those differences are. The things that we assumed were the same about home life are not necessarily the way that we ourselves were raised when we were children, or especially when we begin to have children, we quickly learn that some of those differences are quite different. They can become challenges. Our passage today describes the house rules, the the guidelines, the the way the family is to operate. The, The passage literally says that the local church is, to quote God, the household of God. The local church, according to this passage, is the place where the only God who lives, the living God, makes his home. It infers that we're a family. But it speaks not only to that reality, but specifically how therefore we must live. How we are to conduct ourselves and to do so on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ. I invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let your eyes fall on verse 14. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. Open your soul to receive the words of the living God. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself In the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth, by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's Word. Would you join me at the throne of grace? We're going to ask for His help once again. Our Father, we thank You that You are the living God. and We ask that You would so saturate, so dominate, so contaminate Christ Church New Albany and the hearts of her people with the truth of the Gospel that the unavoidable, happy consequence would be an increasing joy of living in light of who Jesus is, what He has done, and that the way of conduct the code of conduct in this faith family would accentuate the reality that Jesus is the one and wonderful Savior of sinners. Prove this congregation again and again as you have done through the years of her existence until now. Would you increasingly so prove this people this church to be christ's people making her look more like him and using her to point the neighbors of this community and the nations around the world to king jesus we pray this for your glory in jesus name amen well verses 14 to 16 fall into two parts verse 14 and 15 and then verse 16 but before we jump into those two parts, let's make sure we not miss the forest for the trees, how this three verse section relates to the rest of the book of first Timothy. This is the purpose statement of the book. Paul literally said in our passage, I write so that he's telling us the reason that under inspiration of the spirit, he was burdened to write this epistle. So everything that we see before this passage in chapters 1 to 3, and everything we see after this passage in chapters 4 to 6 is grounded in these verses. This is the heart of the book. This is the purpose for which Paul wrote to Timothy. Verse 15 says, I write so that you will know, or one will know, how to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's why Paul wrote the book, so that Christians would know how we ought to conduct ourselves. How we are to live in the home that belongs to God. And so the two things we see, verse 14 and 15 and verse 16, are fruit and root. The aftermath of the work of the Almighty. What it looks like, To be his family on the basis of what he has done for us in Christ. Our conduct is a derivative of the content of the gospel. The culture of our family. The nuances of how we relate to each other. What it means to live as the dwelling place of God. The local church is the byproduct of the fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To put that the other way. The gospel of Christ, verse 16, gives rise to the way we live as His people, verses 14 and 15. So, the gospel culture, the way we love one another, the way we relate to each other, our culture as a family is rooted in the content of the gospel. So, very practically, I want to just ask from the outset, how would you feel... So, you think about the subjective. How would you feel? And second, what would you say if I told you that I'm going to pause for the next few moments and your assignment is to lean over to someone that you didn't come with and to tell them the worst thing you've ever done? How would that make you feel? I'm not going to pause for those moments, I'm not going to give you that assignment. But the reason I even ask a provocative question like that, each of you get 60 seconds, say to the other the worst thing you've ever done. The reason I even ask that type of provocative hypothetical assignment is because unless we really know one another, we will be tempted to pretend like we're a family. But this passage doesn't call us to that kind of pretension. It declares that we are a family. We ought, therefore, to know one another so that we can, on the basis of the Gospel, conduct ourselves in a way that brings Him glory and is for our good. We are the family of God, verse 15. God, therefore, sets the house rules for our conduct, verse 15. So the passage connects two master links in God's unbreakable chain you can't distort this you can't alter or adjust this God's unbreakable chain has two master links one is the way we live as God's people in his church is to be a direct reflection of the gospel message we say we believe if we don't live this way we betray our own profession so in short gospel content verse 16 gives rise to beautiful, Christ-honoring gospel culture. Well, let's look at 14 and 15 and then 16. Verse 14 and 15, the church's conduct. This is what I've been describing as the culture the gospel produces. This is verse 14 and 15. This is who we are and therefore how we live. Look at it again, verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know How one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Before we go to that conduct, verse 15, just look at Paul's intention, his plan. He wanted to visit. That's pretty obvious from verse 14. He wanted to return to Ephesus. He wanted to see his protege, his younger brother, the young man he had discipled in the faith that had gone on some journeys with him previously, whom he left in Ephesus. Paul wanted to see Timothy, but he wanted to see the congregation in Ephesus where Timothy was serving as pastor. That's where Paul himself has served as pastor for at least three years of his ministry. So Paul wanted to go back to them. There's no indication anywhere in the narrative of the book of Acts that this visit ever happened. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but we don't have any conclusive evidence that Paul made his way back there. But we can also deduce from verse 14 and 15 that Paul's intention to go visit his younger brother in the faith and to visit this church that he loved so dearly was not for vacation. It was from burden. It was from divine directive. It's what I'm reminded of when I read the Old Testament prophets. I wonder if you've ever felt like this. Zechariah chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord to Zechariah. Paul had a weight on his soul that he knew he needed to get to the church at Ephesus. The burden of the word of the Lord. Paul wrote in verse 15, but in case I am delayed, I write. There was something so pressing, something so essential and important and urgent on Paul's mind and heart for the church at Ephesus that it could not wait until he was able to visit them. I wonder if you've ever felt like that. Have you ever felt like you had to get something off of your chest? You had to say something to someone, but even more specifically, A divine burden. The Holy Spirit pressing on you through the truth of His Word, something that you knew He intended for you to relay on His behalf. This is Paul's burden, and maybe like him, you've had that experience where the longer you waited to say the burden, the greater the burden became until eventually you had to conclude the face to face is ideal. Though sitting down in person is best, it wouldn't be possible for you to hold out any longer. So you sit down and you write a letter to express your God-given burden. Well, because Paul wrote this letter under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can connect another dot. God knew that the church at Ephesus needed this message before Paul was able to visit them in person. That leads us to the purpose. What is the burden? Paul's purpose for writing, verses 14 and 15. There are three parts to this that I want us to look at. I write, verse 15, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. That's the heart of the burden. It's what we are to do. But all of that action is dependent on what we are. Which again is rooted, verse 16, in what Christ has done. I'm not sure if your parents or grandparents have given you the solid warning. Uh, Kids, maybe you heard this not too long ago. You were going to visit your friend down the street or stay the night with a relative or another friend somewhere and maybe your grandmother or your parents pulled you aside and told you how you ought to behave when you go to somebody else's house, and how you ought to act when you go over there, maybe gave you some detailed instructions about what you are not to do when you go to somebody else's house, and maybe they followed it up. Uh, Those of us who are older, former kids, maybe you can remember your grandmother, your grandfather grabbing you and saying, you are a, and fill in the blank with the family name, not a derogatory thing, but a positive thing, who you are your family name because they knew that maybe you didn't yet understand that when you go somewhere else, you represent them. They expected something of you. When you go somewhere else, you bear the family name. Even if nobody else acts right because you're one of them, you better behave a certain way. To put that another way, what you do while you carry the family name reflects on everybody else who carries the name. And here, Paul's saying what the church should do. Their conduct is rooted in the basis of who they are. Whose name they bear. And more deeply, we could say, whose they are. Who you are. Whose you are is to have a direct impact on how we therefore live in the family. So the first description in verse 15 about what we're to do puts the accent mark on the people who belong to such a God. The second description puts the accent mark on the God to whom the people belong. Look at the nuance. You are a small part of, of the household of God. That's the accent mark on you. The second accent mark falls on him. You are part of the ecclesia, the church, the assembly of the living God. You're his household. And you are his household. That's the way the first two descriptions work. And the third is our duty, our job description. Look at verse 15. You are the church of Of the living God, but before that, you are to conduct yourself, quote, in the household of God. That's you. Household in this phrase is obviously not referring to brick and mortar. It's not the structure. It's not the building. It's the people. The Christians, those who have been brought from death to life, those who have been individually transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the son whom God loves. Colossians 1. Or Ephesians 2. These are people who were dead in their trespasses and sins and have been snatched to life by the power of the risen Jesus to life everlasting. That's you. And you, plural, are God's household. The Christians who are the members of the church at Ephesus. They are God's household. Now you start to apply what this means. Don't just listen waiting for me to say what you can already anticipate. If you, plural, are God's household, it infers something about us in connection to Him. What does it infer? Christ Church, New Albany. You are where the God of the universe lives, you are where He's at home, you're where God resides. The first description in verse 15 points at the Christian family that belongs to God the Father. This is true of you. This is true of this faith family. You are necessarily the abode of the God of the universe. Now it's an astonishing reality. It should cause our jaw to drop and maybe our lip to quiver. It's sobering. It should exhilarate your soul. It should put a jolt Of fear and trembling inside of us. But the replete truth in the New Testament. Not one place, but many places. Thirteen of the books of your New Testament. Written to entire congregations. Underlining the theme over and over again. Explicit statements inside of those epistles. You're the dwelling place of God. You're His house. You're where He lives. Now if we believe this. It would cause us to walk with an appropriate reverence, a fear and a trembling before one another. Not a veneration of each other. Not a fear of each other, but a holy, Christ-honoring respect for each other as several of the prayers that were prayed in the previous hour beautifully expressed. How we would seek to outdo one another in showing honor to each other seeking to be of some means of spiritual encouragement to one another we would want to be an instrument in the hand of the almighty to help somebody else become happier in Jesus if we believe this truth it would do something to us our sacred treatment of each other for God's sake would be the result of our embrace of this reality. Think about Paul's rhetorical questions in another book. When he wrote to a church that wasn't so healthy, the church at Corinth, riddled with problems, Chloe's people report to me the problem such and such, and Paul answers each one of these questions and challenges in the church. But then he adds his own. And he puts it in the rhetorical. He knows that they know. But he puts it this way, do you not know? What would he say after that? Do you not know that you, plural, are a temple of God? Little church at Corinth, do you not know that the Spirit of God dwells in, plural, you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what, plural, you are. You're where God lives. You're his household. Peter uses the exact same phrase, 1 Peter four seventeen, the household of God, to refer to local churches that were scattered all out, all throughout the Gentile world, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Peter's saying, God lives in you. Paul's saying to Timothy, church at Ephesus, God lives there. So, opening description is putting the accent mark on what we are. As regenerate Christians who have covenanted together as one family in Christ, God said, That's my house. In a covenant presence way, we're not talking about conjuring God up. We're not talking about inviting him here as a figment of our imagination. I'm not talking about hocus pocus. I'm not talking about spiritism. I'm talking about supernatural. The king of the universe says he will make his presence known in a special way to a collection of a particular subset of humans on earth. And you can't know him this way unless you are connected to that subset of humanity And he calls it a church. Here where God lives. The second accent mark falls on Him. How you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, the place where God lives, which is, look at the second description, verse 15, the congregation, the assembly, the church, the gathering, the ecclesia of the living God. Now one of the studies that continues to allure me. I want to know more what God is saying about the place He dwells. But one of the studies that has catapulted 2 Corinthians, my soul, into the third heaven, that has transported me to help me see something of the grandeur and glory of God in Christ, is to study where God says in Scripture, He loves to make Himself known. What's the address where God says, if you will go there, I will meet you? Wouldn't you want to know that address? Well, I can think of three. Prayer, His Word, and His people. But when all three are brought together in one location, God promises to be there. I don't know who you greeted when you walked in today. I'm here today to tell you God was between you and every one of them in a special way. God's presence, He says, in explicit ways, has been manifested in eternity past in what He calls glory. In... The various temple portraits on earth in human history. God was present in a special way in the Garden of Eden. Though he's omnipresent and everywhere all the time, his covenant presence dwelt specially in the tabernacle and temple of the Old Testament. In individual Christians, God is said to take up residence. In New Testament churches, the living God says he makes his covenant presence known there. He's at home, he lives there. That's his house. And in eternity future, it will be the dwelling place of, quote, the living God. The Bible's clear that God dwells in us individually. The Bible is also dominated with a pattern that God makes himself known. In a way that he cannot otherwise be known and enjoyed. In the context of a covenant community called a local church. That's the second accent mark. You are part of the church of the living God. The living God. Paul's obviously making a contrast between the one true God. Triune and all the other so-called gods. Paul, as I mentioned, had ministered in the city of Ephesus for three years. He knew the city well. He knew the highways and byways. He had walked the streets with his own feet many times, going up and down the pathways to visit the believers in their homes and to commend Christ in the community. And he knew that in that so-called great city was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the gigantic temple to the Greek god Artemis, also known as Diana. One of those seven wonders of the ancient world. And Paul is, in, Paul is asserting by inference that that God and every other is dead. Just like all the pagan gods of the Old Testament. Deaf, dumb, mute, blind, can't see, hear, or act. Inventions of man's imagination. Creations of man's own hand. Idols littering the land in the Old Testament. All to dead deities. Baal is dead. The gods of the pagan nations surrounding Old Testament Israel are dead. There is no such thing as another God. There aren't two or ten or ten thousand. There is one and only one living God. Isaiah 44 comes to mind where a man cuts down a tree and And he takes the trunk of it and he lays it down and he cuts it in half and with half of it he builds a fire to warm himself and with half of it he carves out an idol to bow down and worship. How foolish! What if he got the wrong end of the log? What if he burned the God and worshipped the fire? Every God is dead because there are no other gods besides the one true God. You are the assembly of the only God who is alive. And in a covenant presence way, bought by the blood of Jesus, He's right here. Right now. I know what you think about coming to church on Sunday, but if you believed that the presence of the risen Jesus was here in a special way, a covenant gospel purchased way, Nothing would be able to prevent you from being with this assembly when they gather. Barring divine prohibition, near-death experience, you would crawl over broken glass to be here if you believed the king of the universe was in the building. And I'm telling you, he's closer to you right now than the pew on which you sit. That's what you are. You are the assembly of the God who lives. What a beautiful description. And then we get our marching orders at the end of verse 15 of what we're to do. Because we're His house, His abode, where God loves to dwell, make His presence known. And because He's the living God, we are to be the pillar and support of the truth. So many times churches get distracted. But Paul wrote this letter so that we would know how to conduct ourselves. And our conduct is to do something. The way we relate to each other. The way we treat each other. The way we pursue each other intentionally and not accidentally. Accidentally. The way we're not only reactive, hoping that somebody else will do something for us, but proactively, God, how might you use me in this body for the glory of Jesus? We are to do something in the way we relate. That is to hold up, to support, to showcase, to display the truth. God has entrusted his name, his character, He has entrusted his gospel message, which is the next verse, to his churches. Christ Church New Albany, I I say this with just deep heart, desire, and prayer for the congregation to which I belong in Memphis. If we abdicate our responsibility to hold up the truth, who's going to do it? How is New Albany and Memphis and all of our little enclaves of planet Earth, going to know the one true God if we somehow diminish or cloak or cloud or hide under a bushel or put under a bed? How is the world going to know the truth if the church, the only living organism that belongs to the living God, entrusted with this sacred task, abdicates our job? We are to preserve and propagate the truth of God. Now notice, it's not the pastor's responsibility only. It's not Timothy, make sure you hold up the truth it's the church of the god who lives that is together the buttress the support the pillar on which the truth of god sits and shines to the world ray van s said in his commentary on this passage god has entrusted to the church the task of promoting and protecting the gospel just like i said to our congregation we're preaching through First Timothy now. Just recently, if I stop proclaiming the true gospel, please find another pastor. It's the church's job entrusted to the entire congregation to see to it that the gospel is both protected, held up high, promoted, and propagated to the world. The truth. The truth is not an idea it's not a ethereal set of unknown categories it's a person the lord jesus said of himself i am the way the truth and the life when jesus is talking to the samaritan woman He said, the Father is seeking worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Christ Church New Albany. You. 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 Not only you, not exclusively you. God has His thousands who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But you are the place where God lives. The living God dwells. And your job is to hold the truth of God high. The way you relate to each other should not diminish the truth, should not obscure the truth. The way you love and serve and encourage each other, the way you point each other to Christ, should seek to accentuate the truth for the congregation and for the surrounding community, indeed the ends of the earth, to see. What truth? That's gospel content. That's verse 16. So the culture of the church is what we just said. God lives here. We hold his truth up. The way we relate to each other should only seek to accentuate the God who is. But what truth? This is our confession. Verse 16. The church's confession. Look at it again. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. A six-line stanza of gospel dynamite. It opens with this phrase, common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Common confession means it was probably well known to the churches of the first century the places where Paul and the other apostles had been, the place where churches sprung up in the known world between Jerusalem and Ephesus and now Paul writing from elsewhere. And by common confession and the way the stanzas roll out these six parallel statements about the gospel, it perhaps was a hymn or a creed or some kind of statement that the early church would profess together when they gathered on the Lord's Day for Christ-centered worship. And those six lines of this common confession about the gospel, that's great mystery of godliness, no longer mysterious, no longer veiled, now open for the whole world to see. These six stanzas fall under two categories of theology known as Christology and Soteriology. Words we don't hear often except for in church occasionally, but Christology is the doctrine of Christ. Who is he? Soteriology is a doctrine of salvation. What has God done in him to make us his friend? Christology and soteriology. This is the heart of the Christian faith. This is the content of the Christian message. This is the truth that the church ought not obscure, must not obscure. This is what we are to hold high. This is what should be on the pillar. This is the glorious gospel. The six lines of verse 16 about that gospel are in three pairs. Two, two, two. What Christ has accomplished, that accomplishment being made known in the world, and what happens once that accomplishment is made known, the response to Christ and His gospel work. Look at stanza one. What Christ has accomplished. Two statements. He was revealed in the flesh. He was vindicated in the Spirit. Now think about Jesus. This opening phrase, He was revealed in the flesh. This is Christology. This is a statement about the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became a man without forfeiting any of His deity, without setting aside any of His divine nature. All of God poured into humanity. This is what Colossians is talking about in chapter 2. The fullness of deity dwelt in Him bodily. Emmanuel, God with us, still retaining his omnipresence, all of God everywhere all the time, still retaining all of his omnipotence, all power in this one person, still remaining all of his omniscience, not forgetting anything that belongs to the knowledge of the one true God, which is exhausted. The Lord Jesus was revealed in the flesh. Who is God? The Lord Jesus from everlasting what we assert as christians is that the baby that was in the manger was simultaneously the king of the universe the one who was born of the virgin is the one we assert who made the mom who birthed him he was revealed in the flesh the next line vindicated in the spirit this is a statement I believe about the resurrection of Christ, the God who became man and dwelt among us, the God who came and made God known to us in the flesh and lived the life of impeccable obedience, God-honoring perfection, sinless, joyful delight in God at all times. We rewarded Him with a mutilating death on a cross outside of Jerusalem Because we couldn't stand for somebody so holy to be among us. And in perfect accord with the eternal counsel of God, for that one perfect God-man to die in our stead on that cross outside of Jerusalem, God vindicated him. I love this word. You know what vindication means? Proven to be true. Everything he ever said. All the claims he made about himself and you and me. Everything He ever spoke was validated as fact, vindicated in the Spirit. When He was raised from the dead. Sounds almost identical to Romans 1. The opening lines talk about the same Gospel in the book of Romans. And in verse 2 it says, this Gospel message was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Old Testament concerning God's Son, theirs made known in the flesh, Born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, here comes the vindication, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's the basic Christian message that God became a man, that the Lord Jesus is the God man, who in his death, we can be certain, satisfied the wrath of God against sinners in His atoning death, and the certainty comes in the reality that God raised Him from the dead. It's the heart of the Christian message. Now some of you may not believe that message. Some of you may belong to parents who believe that message that drag you to church. I don't know your situation. I assure you, one day very soon, all of you will believe that message. Not everybody All over the world, savingly, but all of the people, certainly. There will be no doubt that Jesus is who he said he is because God has already vindicated him. God has already raised him from the dead so as to shout to the universe, he is who he said he is. The vindication is already accomplished. That's the heart of the Christian message. Then what did those who met the risen Jesus then do? So the second two lines of the stanza says he was seen by angels and proclaimed among the nations. This is the accomplishments of the person and work of Jesus, the life and gospel labors of Jesus being made known. This is the inevitable consequence of believing the gospel message seen by angels. The word for angels could be angelic. Creatures, or it could be human messengers. The same word is used in the New Testament for both of those categories. But concerning those angelic beings, and perhaps it is those that Paul's referring to, seen by angels, I remind you that some of them were sitting on or standing above the rock that was supposedly sealing the impenetrable entrance to the tomb. But when Jesus was raised from the dead and the rock was exploded from its face and rolled away, those angels were there to greet those who came to see, so they thought, the dead body of Jesus. I remind you also that there are other angels spoken about in the Gospel accounts about the resurrection. Do you remember that when some people looked into the tomb, they saw, the Gospel writers are careful to tell us, two angels? And where they were positioned, one at the head of the slab and One at the foot of the slab where the body of Jesus was laid. And if you're conversant with your Old Testament, you would immediately begin to see another slab that had two angels touching their wings over it. The Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant where the mercy seat was and the priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice to satiate the wrath of God until Romans 3 tells us the death of Jesus happened, which is why God passed over the sins previously committed, to demonstrate His righteousness in the death of Jesus In His blood. So in the Old Testament, there was a mercy seat where blood was sprinkled and two angels' wings touched over that. And these two people look into the tomb and what do they see? But two angels at the head and the foot of the slab where the sacrifice was offered. He was seen by angels. It could be those messengers of our rank. Humans who pronounce the glad tidings of the good things of the risen Jesus. He was seen, but once you see Him, something happens to you. You proclaim Him. Peter said to the people that wanted to shut Him up, quote, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. The operative question of your life, have you met the risen Jesus? That's The definitive mark that changed people like Peter from cowards who would not acknowledge Christ in Caiaphas' courtyard before a slave girl to preaching to thousands on the day of Pentecost and being willing to be tortured and, if necessary, killed for this proclamation. What changed? Meeting the risen Jesus. Once he was met, He was certainly and necessarily proclaimed. Proclaimed among the nations. The word nations is Gentiles. That's all the peoples. Meaning that Jesus is not a tribal deity. He's not just for you and your type. He's for the whole world. All the peoples. All the nations. He's been proclaimed. Because He's the only Savior for all sinners. The third and final stanza... Not only the accomplishment of Jesus made known in the flesh and vindicated in the Spirit, His death, burial, resurrection, not only His accomplishments being made known, but now very practically to you, believed, taken up. This is the aftermath of gospel proclamation. This stanza has in it the undeniable result of, Of Gentile receptivity to the gospel message. There may be some ethnic Jews among us, and if there are, I don't know it. I just presume that all, if not most, if not all of us are Gentiles. Paul's saying this Jesus is believed on in the world, across all peoples. When the Apostle Paul went to the city of Corinth for the first time and preached the Gospel, a Jewish synagogue leader named Crispus believed the Gospel. It says he believed in the Lord with all of his household. Now, of course, that didn't make the Jews happy when their synagogue leader turned from what he had been proclaiming to say that Jesus is the Savior that the Old Testament promised didn't make many of them happy. In Acts 18, it especially didn't make them happy when many Corinthians, when they heard the Word, were believing and being baptized, believed on in the world. And Paul was being severely accosted and people were wanting to end him or remove him. And Paul perhaps like all of us being tempted to fear what's going to happen to me if I keep proclaiming this message among all these people that aren't happy. Paul. God said to Paul a word of promise. He said, I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Therefore, Paul settled there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Acts 18, 10 and 11. Do you see it? People who've not yet believed are in the city of Corinth. So you have to stay there and proclaim Him. Because God intends for some of them to also, like Crispus and his household, believe. He was believed on in the world. And God's still doing the same thing today through stammering, stuttering preachers just like me. And Christian parents just like those who are in this room. And I'm here to say to you today, the Lord Jesus Christ has demonstrated God's love for you in dying for your sins so that you could have a favorable meeting with God. He died for your sins to make atonement for your crime against the King of the universe. And He rose again from the dead, proving that if you will thrust your soul into His almighty arms, He will bring you safely to God forever. As Paul said, that message in the city of Corinth, people believed for a year and a half. I wonder if that's happened to you. Finally, he was taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. So reference to the ascension, maybe hearkening back to that angelic witness. Two angels were there in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended into glory. But Paul in another place, the book of Ephesians, which we heard read to us chapter 1 this morning, in that chapter it concludes by saying the same power that God exerted when He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies, taken up in glory. The same power, not like it, that very power is at work. In local churches Ephesians 1 says Paul's praying that the eyes of our heart would be open to see that the power God exerted when he seated his son in the heavenlies is the power that's at work in the Ephesian church when he was taken up in glory this is the capstone of the gospel events the end of the gospel is not that Jesus rose from the dead that's an essential truth of the gospel But the end of the gospel is that the one who rose from the dead is rightfully seated on heaven's throne. He is currently presently, whether you've ever thought about it or not, doesn't change the reality. He's the king. He's on the throne. He's reigning and ruling over the affairs of all men. He is the king of the universe. He was taken up in glory. And as I said a moment ago, one day soon, everybody's going to believe that. Some, damnably, when it's everlastingly too late. Some, savingly, entering into the very glory in which Jesus now sits. The conclusion of the Gospel, the capstone of the Gospel, is that the glorified Redeemer one day is going to hear the Father's happy announcement. Isaiah 64 unzip the floor of heaven and fall Habakkuk 2:14 the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the water covers the sea one day the glorified Jesus who's ascended into heaven sitting on heaven's throne that a lot of people ignore they think is a figment of these Christian people's imagination. That 2,000 year old story that some of you people can't just get over. And you keep talking about one day very soon, that glorified Redeemer will flick the sun out of the universe. And it will never be nighttime. Because the glory that beams from His person will illuminate all of heaven. You will not be able to unsee the glorified Jesus. For those who belong to Him. But I've got to close by reminding you again what will happen to all who do not submit to Him by faith. When He comes again, 2 Thessalonians 1 says, quote, He will deal out retribution to all who did not obey the gospel. The glory of God, or as R.C. Sproul put it, the holiness of God, is the worst news in the universe to an unbeliever. The fact that Jesus has been taken up in glory is terrifying news to people who do not submit to Him as Lord. That verse in Thessalonians goes on to say, not only will He deal out retribution to all who did not obey the Gospel, but when He comes, He will come to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed the gospel. His taken up, being taken up in glory is the template, the prototype, the first fruits of what we soon will enjoy. Like Him, really soon, all believers will see a smile break out over His face. And we'll hear the glad tidings of this Lord Jesus saying, enter into the joy of your master. The two applications are, I hope, abundantly obvious. Verse 16, believe this gospel. Give your life to this Jesus. But count the cost. Let's make sure we're not doing lip service to a God of our imagination. When I say believe this gospel in verse 16, don't untether it from the truth of verse 15. If you believe this gospel, let me tell you the unavoidable consequence. You will joyfully bring your life in accord to a congregation of people who also believe this gospel. You will want to live with the God who lives. You will want to make your home where God's house is. The context of a local church. And together, you will want to amplify your individual ability to show the one true God to the world. You will want to increase the potential that you don't possess by yourself. To help other people know this true God. So together, the congregation is the pillar and support of the truth. It's uncanny how God arranges things. I thought the first sister who prayed, prayed the whole sermon in the prayer service. And I thought the last hymn we sang preached the whole sermon in poetic form. I literally have in my notes two verses of the church's one foundation the hymn we sang right before i stand to preach let me remind you of what you said the church shall never perish her dear lord to defend to guide sustain and cherish he is with her to the end though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail against both foe and traitor she ever shall prevail Yet she, on earth, hath union with God, the three-in-one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O oh, happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the already glorified saints, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly on high, may dwell with thee. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank You that You have given Your Son to be what You call the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We know that His sacrifice was accepted because You vindicated Him. You raised Him from the dead by the Spirit to life forevermore. And we doubly know that His sacrifice was acceptable to You, even for sinners like us, because You set Him at Your right hand on Heaven's throne. He has been taken up in glory. And we pray, Lord, that You would cause His risen life to course through the veins of the body of this church. That You would cause King Jesus to be the centerpiece and great attraction to all who are within and to be the clear message to all who are without. We ask that until Jesus comes again, you would so fill Christ Church New Albany with the Spirit of the risen Jesus that He Himself holds the place of preeminence in the way this congregation relates to each other. That the conduct of this church would accord with the person and work of Jesus. That the supernatural flow of the grace of the risen, exalted, soon returning Jesus would be the dominating power of this congregation. Lord, we ask that lots of people would both hear and believe the gospel message that's trumpeted from this congregation. And we ask that those who are in this faith family would both know and be known by one another so that they may be the instruments in your hand to minister your grace to each other. Help them, Lord, to be more like Jesus than they would have been had they not been united to this body of Christ. On the positive, cause them to be as holy as saved sinners can be. To be as grown up in Jesus, Ephesians 4, as is possible on this side of eternity. And do it because you live here. Because this is where you dwell. Let the power of your presence and the sweetness that you dwell here be the dominating aroma of the relationships of this congregation. Be glorified, O Lord. Rest your mighty self on the pillar, on the foundation of this congregation. Show your mighty presence and minister deeply to the souls of the people in this congregation as they live their lives as your house. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name.
0: We'll close with a passage from 1st Timothy and then we'll be seated for just a moment of silence. Paul writes now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.